morning. Let me welcome you all. It's so great to be back. I mentioned the Sunday School. We're very glad to, to be here and equally glad not to be driving anymore. It's a long trip, but uh, the kids did a really great job, and, uh, and uh, we're just grateful for all the safety we had as well. Um, we're also incredibly grateful for our van. Um, any other car we've probably ever owned could not have made that trip, um, which might say something about the cars we normally buy, I'm not sure, or my general lack of mechanical skills. But um, we are, uh, I can't tell you how grateful we are to, to receive the news that you all gave us such a generous gift uh, last week. Uh, it, first of all, it's just like Pastor Greg to pull something like that when I'm out of town. So that's the first thing. Um, <laughs> number two, um, just uh, the amount and uh, the generosity uh, of your spirit towards us. I, I can't tell you how much that meant to us. And we always miss you all, but being gone this long really made that uh, all the more accentuated this, this time away. We just really missed you all and are very, very glad to be back, uh, back in Utah and away from the humidity and, and all the rest of that. So, but we're, we were glad to have some great time with Megan's family as well. We didn't get as much time as we would have liked, but uh, we were grateful for what we had. And we also mostly enjoyed ourselves and uh, just really thank you so much for your care for us as we were gone. And we're glad to, glad to be back. Uh, well, as uh, Daniel read, we are going to be James, so if you're not in James 1 yet, let me encourage you to turn there, and uh, let's pray, and then ask for God's help, and we will jump right in. God, we're so grateful for your kindness to us, and uh, today, the opportunity we have to now sit before your word and listen to you. I know that uh, you have given us a variety of weeks this last week. Some of us have had a week of real success and joy and uh, pleasure, and others of us have had very difficult weeks. and, and no doubt, uh, scattering all between. Thank you for gathering us together here to proclaim that you are good and you are great. In these moments, I pray that as we worship you, that you really would teach us as well and, and satisfy our needs, fulfill our, our deepest needs. Thank you that you are the solution to all of our problems and that even when we face trials and testings, as we'll talk about today, that you can give us true joy because you are in control. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Well, uh, as you all know, I grew up in a family with lots of kids. Uh, there were seven of us, and my parents were really into calling family meetings. All right, kids, how many of your parents call like family meetings? You know what I'm talking about? Okay, some of you have that. Well, it'd be like family meeting. We'd all be down in the living room, and I also we also moved a lot when I was a kid. So we basically oh sorry, children's church, you are dismissed. Get out of here, kids. I'm talking I'm talking about parent uh, family meetings now. We're gonna say all the secrets while you're out. Sorry about that. Yeah, so um, we would always have all these family meetings, and as we would gather together as family, we always knew as kids there were basically one of two things that were going to happen. Number one, my parents were going to announce we're having another sibling, which I feel like that happened like every three minutes, all right? I'm, um, my mom had my youngest brother when she was 45, so I mean, it was not out of the question to, to come to any family room at any particular time and figure out another kid was coming. That was one. Number two was we were moving, all right? So it was like family meeting meant one of those two things. So we all came into the room, and I was the last. I don't remember what I was doing, but I came bounding down the stairs, and I suddenly realized that the whole mood was very, very different. Um, everybody was very quiet still. My parents were not jovial, jovial at all. They didn't look expectant, uh, not just expecting, but expectant of what God might have been doing or some move we were going on. It was just somber. So I sat down, and my parents shared with me that my grandpa had suddenly passed away. He really had been my hero. That was the first time I can really remember experiencing the kind of a trial that would take me years and years and years to really work through. 
I was all of 13, I think, at the time. I know many of you have stories very much like that. Deep, hard stories that took years and years and years for you to get through. Some of you, even now, are facing that kind of challenge. But trials come in all forms and sizes. Sometimes they're much more benign than that, aren't they? They can just be a, uh, a very small thing. I remember uh, when we were newly married, I, I have a car breaking down story. I need to stop telling these things, I guess. I'm, I'm having too many of these. But Megan and I were, I don't know, maybe a few years into our marriage. And we lived in South Carolina. And there's a, there's a big um, mansion in North Carolina that we love to go to. It's called the Biltmore. All right, now the Biltmore, if you want to know anything about it, I've taken every tour. I know every inch of that place. I can give you a history. So you just come up to me. We went to that thing a lot. We got a really cheap season pass. And that year, we went up there all the time. Well, it was one of our first times to be able to use that pass. And uh, it's just a, an amazing house built in the late 1800s. It um, has a, a pool in it. It has a bowling alley in it for like 1895. Not bad, right? One of the first houses with electricity. It's, it's, it's a majestic area, huge gardens. We were super excited. We got away for the weekend. And I don't know about you, but we're singers in the car. So when there's music playing, we're singing. So we were on our road, driving, singing at the top of our lungs, and our car completely died, all right? <laughs> Just gone. We were all of maybe 30 minutes out of town. We had another hour or so to drive. And we had been anticipating this trip for such a long time, and it was gone. In fact, what we had to do was get towed, ride in the tow truck with the guy. Then I walked like 35 minutes to a guy's house, uh, borrowed his car, drove back, picked up Megan, and that was our day. So trials come in all shapes and sizes, don't they? They can be just a disappointment. They can be real heartache, like I mentioned. And they can be a bunch of things in between. There's one thing we really all have in common is we all have to respond to trials. We all do. James is going to give us a tremendous help in this passage. He's, he's going to tell us something about trials and that something will help us respond in the way that he's encouraging. The basic command is this, that we should respond with joy when trials come our way. And the reason is because God is in control. And that's what we're going to look at today. Now, originally, I had just verses 2 through 8, but I became convinced that verse 1 really is important set up for all this. So we're going to start in verse 1. And I'll just read that here for you now. This is the context of the command. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes and the dispersion, greetings. This really is this context uh, of the command. James is the brother of Jesus. James was a leader in the Jerusalem church. And uh, we figured this out um, from uh, the book of Acts, from the book of Galatians. But here in uh, Mark and Matthew that I have listed for you here, both of these mention that this is, one of these are, this is one of the brothers of Jesus. But notice he doesn't call himself the brother of Jesus. Now, if, if it were me and Jesus was my brother, that would probably be my introduction to people, right? For you, say, I'm Jesus's brother. Now listen to me, but he doesn't do that. Instead, he calls himself a servant of God. A slave is the word. A slave of God and a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here is James, this one who we figure out from the, from the Gospels was not a follower of Jesus to start with. His family had rejected him as the Messiah. And yet after Jesus died and rose again, something changed in James. James was actually the definitive voice at the council in Jerusalem, you might remember from Acts 15. When they weren't sure what to do with the matter of circumcision, James was the one to speak and to settle the matter. Yes, James is the leader of the Jerusalem church, and yet he calls himself the servant, the slave of God and the slave of Jesus. He calls him the Lord Jesus Christ. He believed his brother was the divine. That's what the word Lord means. 
Messiah. That's the word Christ means, the anointed one, this promised one from the first pages of the Bible. I mentioned that he used to be a denier of Christ, it seems. His family had rejected him, yet something changed. And Paul tells us, or gives us a little hint in the book of 1 Corinthians, he says this, that Jesus went and first of all sought out James after his resurrection. It seems that Jesus went and met him and seeing the resurrected Lord convinced James of the truth. This is the power of the resurrection. It is one of those self-identifying marks of the Messiah. He would rise again. James sees him and now believes him to be the Lord, God himself, Christ the Messiah. James is writing, though, to a certain group of people. James says in the end of verse 1, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. These 12 tribes, it's a Jewish audience primarily. Now, if you think about it, at this time in history, there weren't really 12 tribes. There had been a whole split off of the northern group. So this is more like a shorthand for the believing people of God, most of which would have been Jewish people spread all about. This dispersion, this scattering, was due to persecution itself. In fact, Acts chapter 8, verse 1, gives us an example of this when Saul of Tarsus goes. It says that there arose in that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, all around. This is what had happened. And so James is writing to them, and he has something specific to say to these exact kinds of people, the kinds of people who have faced trials and testings, things that would cause them to doubt or to struggle to respond positively. These are the people that James is writing to. James wants them to know how they should interact with the trials that God has chosen for them, how they are to have joy in trials. This is the context that we have. And now let's move to the central action of the command. The central of the action of the command, I'm going to just phrase it like this. Here is his central, his central command. Evaluate each inevitable trial, that's supposed to be trial, sorry, as a reason for pure joy. That's James's command in this passage. Your evaluation of each inevitable trial, they're going to come you are supposed to count them as joy. They're a reason for pure joy. And that flies in the face of everything we think of when we think of hardship, doesn't it? Now, it's one thing to grit your teeth and bear through hardship. It's another thing to be resigned to hardship or to even anticipate hardship. It's another thing to be okay with hardship. It's a far different thing to say, I will respond with joy. How do you have joy in the midst of trials? Well, this is the central command, and it is not without grace. In fact, God is going to give us grace that we need to accept this, to respond this way in the text itself. And what I want to do is work backwards through this verse, verse 2, start at the end, and then work our way back, because I think it will help us to understand James' flow of thought. So let's read verse 2 again. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Let's first of all then look at the trials of various kinds. These trials are, are intentionally vague, intentionally generic, but it does seem like he has especially in mind suffering for Christ because that's who he's writing to. And the book of James actually goes on at some length later on talking about these kinds of sufferings that we face because of Christ. But by calling it various kinds, it seems like he wants to leave the door intentionally ambiguous so that you can take whatever trial it is that you're facing right now and plug it into this verse. Whenever James says you have any trial. Here should be your response, pure joy. Here's how you should rash, uh, reason to it. These trials of various kinds. I remember when I was uh, in college, 
I'd had a particularly bad day. I don't remember why. It was probably I did poorly on a test. Somebody treated me poorly. I don't remember, but the, the day was just not going my way. It was one of those days where it's like you turn to step and you step in like some dog dropping, and you're like, oh, great. And then you move over here and you get hit by a car. I mean, it was one of those days, and I was just uh, frustrated. Well, I had a friend. I hadn't seen him in a couple of days, and I saw him. His name was Greg. And I said, hey, Greg. I said, how are you doing? He's like, oh, I, you know, I'm doing okay. And he said, how are you doing? And then I just rambled on at length. I just told him everything up and down that had been horrible that whole day and how, like, every time I tried to do anything, it didn't turn out right. And I was just complaining, all right? Well, I said, you know, oh, I haven't seen you in a few days. Where, where, where have you been? Because he was just down the hall from me. And he said, well, um, my, my grandpa just passed away. Well, you can imagine that I felt about that big <laughs> at that time. So I spent the next 10 minutes apologizing for how I had responded to him when he first came up to me. I said, you know, I, I have had you know, a tough day, but obviously nothing like what you've been through. I'm so sorry. And he stopped me and he said, you know, it's OK. He said, you know, when, when you go to the doctor and they ask you to give you a, a pain scale of 1 to 10, they're not making deep medical diagnoses off of that. They really want to know how you're experiencing it. And if you're experiencing today like a 10, then it's a 10. And it's OK if that's tough for you. And I'll be praying for you for those things. And I think maybe just the embarrassment of the moment has locked that kind of an analogy in my mind. You might be here saying, you know what? Well, I don't really have that many trials today. You know, there's not that much going wrong. There's just something small that's irritating. Whether that's the case for you or whether you're experiencing some of the deepest pain you've ever had to experience today, James says, whatever your trial, if it's a 10, if it's a 2, however you're experiencing it, God wants you to come and bring that to him today. So what trials are you facing? We've just gone through a holiday, and we're about to go through another one here this weekend, and it may be that some of you have had to face some real ostracization from your family. Maybe you face that day in and day out at work because of your connection to Christ. I remember when I was in high school, I played on a soccer team, and um, the team, although it was a supposedly Christian school, there were a lot of kids who were probably not believers, and uh, really their whole lifestyle would, would teach you that. And I just remember that every time I would walk into a locker room, immediately the conversation would stop, and most of the time there would be a snide remark made my way. I didn't do anything. I just walked in. But whatever they were talking about, they were certain I didn't want to hear it. That hurts, doesn't it? That kind of pushback from people that you're supposed to be close to. Could be something like that. Could be a whole variety of other trials, whether it's physical pain or some unknown health problem. Maybe you have some financial pressure on you. Or it's just simple loneliness. Or right now, you, you really don't feel like you have somebody you can confide in. Could be that you have a child who's pulling away from you, or who already has. Isn't it true that we have a whole variety of struggles that we face, especially, like James seems his central point, those that are attached to the fact because we're a Christian? We all have these because they're all a universal experience, and that's really where James goes back to next if we work our way backwards up the, group, uh, up the verse. He says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, by saying when you meet, he doesn't say if you meet for a reason. Because we all face these trials. They're a part of life. And this is something that the New Testament especially commonly refers to. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who are desired to live 
a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So whether it's some persecution or merely the, the fact that we live in a fallen world, and that fallen world comes with pains and heartaches and, and sin. We all face trials of a variety of kinds. And so he says, when you meet these. This word meet is, is a little bit of a soft translation, just because it's hard to kind of translate this in the full sense and for it to make sense without a, a half sentence here. But the word meet here only actually occurs three times in the New Testament. The other two times make it clear that what he's talking about here is an unexpected hazard or danger. And I've listed the two other times here. The first one is Jesus telling the story of the Good Samaritan. This man falls among robbers. That's the word. He fell among the robbers. The other one is Acts 27, where Paul is talking about his shipwreck where it struck a rock. It says that the boat was struck, struck a reef. That word strike a rock, a reef, is that same word here. In other words, you're going along your day-to-day -day life and out of nowhere, you get hit with something. Isn't that how most of our trials come to us? Sometimes we see them coming a long way off, but most of them come to us with no warning at all. They come to us with exactly zero warning. And so James wants us to know that these trials will happen to us. And actually anticipating that helps. Anticipating that the pain of trials helps us be prepared for when they come. James, as it were, says this, prepare your mind ahead of time. It's an entirely different thing to be hit along the side with a trial versus saying, I know one's coming because God regularly will bring these my way. I want to be ready when it comes. There's actually a preparation that it takes in our hearts to be ready to respond the way James is going to say. This will not happen without preparation. So James wants us to know that they're coming. At the beginning of the verse, then, he says this, count it all joy, my brothers. This is the central activity. And the word, count it, is the word that has the idea of regarding or thinking a certain way. And that really is the trouble, isn't it? It's, it's how we think about the trials that come. How you process it in your own mind. That's actually where the battle is fought, isn't it? Some of you say, you know what, I don't respond poorly to trials. I just take control of the situation and fix it. Well, that is actually the way you're thinking about it. You're saying things like this to, my, to yourself. I can find a way out. Some of you say, here's what I think of when I see a trial coming. Oh, I have no hope. There's nothing I can do. Maybe you're in that spot this morning. Maybe some of you see trials brought about by other people's actions towards you, and here's what you think. Here's how you reckon it. I'm going to make them pay, or I will work this to my advantage. Or maybe you think things like this, nobody loves me, or God doesn't care for me. It actually is our minds where the battle is fought, and so James attacks or, or centers his thought on that. How is it that you reckon the trial that comes to you? How do you process it? How do you think about that trial? If you're facing a trial that's obvious to you this morning, I want you to ask yourself, what have you been saying to yourself? Because nobody has talked to you about that trial more than you. Nobody. So what do you talk about? How do you talk about that? How do you process it? How do you evaluate it? That really is James's point. James says this, that he wants you to evaluate it and the end of that evaluation is this, pure joy. You almost want to ask, James, have you had a perfect life? <laughs> That's not how trials work. People don't see a trial coming and come out on the other side saying, I'm so happy that happened. This word joy is a word that goes far beyond just the experience of, of a trial. It's actually a word that is, can be disassociated completely from the, the, the surrounding around you. It's 
it's a settled conviction that what this is is good for me. So James isn't talking about mere Pollyanna uh, joy in the face of hardship, but rather a settled conviction that this is good for me, and I welcome it. I welcome what's happening because I know it's good for me. Pure joy, James says. This is to his brothers, to Christians. This is only possible for a Christian. If you're outside of Christ, this is not for you. You cannot have it. You can't respond to trials this way. And it really is a truly unique Christian virtue to be able to see a trial coming, to experience that trial, and to say this, this is good. Not just I'm okay with it, or we'll make it through, or it's painful, but I'll grit my teeth. Let me ask you, though, as a Christian, aren't those responses far more common for us? They are, aren't they? Some of you, you really, you see a hardship coming, and you just work harder. You become a workaholic, and you'll fix it. But joy? Well, that's not natural to any of us. Some of you see a trial, pain coming, and you just withdraw from people. Maybe you're quiet, and you say nothing to anyone, but in your mind, you're evaluating, you're processing it the whole time. Whatever that is, you would never characterize it with the word joy. It doesn't matter where you fall along that spectrum, whether it's aggressiveness towards the trial or withdrawal or discouragement or despondency even. Everything in between. The question needs to be asked, are we responding with the one flower that only comes for Christians? Pure joy. You see how special this is? It's not common to our experience, but James wants it to be because he says that every trial should be faced this way. One translation puts it just like that. Count it nothing but joy. The whole of it should be joy. No other response or evaluation. Well, we need some rationale for this, don't we? <laughs> that makes no sense. So James provides that for us. What's the rationale for this kind of thinking? Whether it's quietly withdrawing or angry outbursts or calculated manipulation or workaholism, the natural responses to us come naturally, but joy doesn't. So what's the rationale for this thinking? Well, James continues in verse 3 with this little connecting word for. It's the word of explanation, and he says this, that joy comes from looking through the trial to the end of it, to the, the purpose for it. This for, then, is the reason to count it joy. He says that Verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He says that trials that God allows our way are sent to us for a purpose. They are to test our faith. Now, it seems like James could mean one of two things. Maybe he means both. Sometimes the, the ambiguousness of the writing is actually meant to think about it from both ways. On the one hand, and this is the way we would think of it, is your faith in God's word genuine? In other words, you see a trial coming to you, and now you have to actually take God's word and apply it to that trial. And James says that that moment of testing is like the moment of testing for a precious metal. What percentage of this is really gold? What percentage of your rest is actually on God's words? Or do you bring your own thoughts and ideas about that trial and why God should or should not have brought it to you? But it seems like there's also another angle that James may have in mind here, which is this, is the object of your faith, of your tested faith, genuine. In other words, when you put your trust and faith in God, 
Is he found to be reliable? Is God reliable in that moment? It seems like both of those, both our experience of resting in God and the actual question is, is God rest, trustworthy? Is he reliable? When you put your weight on him, does he hold? James says in that moment, both of those things are tested. He says this then, that, that the trials that God sends our way are to strengthen or to reveal both of those. And in the revelation to bring us closer to God, not to push us further away. I'm sure you have heard the stories like I have. So many of God's people have experienced great, great physical trauma and yet are some of the most joyful people. Megan and I traveled on a, a team for our school back in 2009, it was. That's before we were dating, but I remember we, we went to a, a lady in the church who could no longer make it out to the services. This was before live streaming was really a thing. And so she spent all day in her room. This woman could not do anything without help. She couldn't eat, drink, she could hardly move. And I walked into that room expecting to see somebody despondent and discouraged and ready to just die. She was up in her upper 80s, I think. I don't remember her name, but I remember that the room almost felt like it brightened up when we walked from the hallway to the room. She, had, she couldn't see well at all. She could hardly talk, but she had the biggest smile on her face. We went and we sang a couple hymns to her. And the woman just cried and talked about her love for God and how important what we were doing was. She talked about how, in spite of what she was going through, that God had given her a special privilege because she could do nothing but pray. So she said, all I do all day is pray. I get to talk to God all day. I remember leaving that room thinking, wow, how did she get that kind of skill to face that trial and yet respond with what can only be described as joy? Well, this kind of tested faith showed this. She really was resting in God's words about what was going on in her life. And even more important, God's words were found trustworthy. It really did work. This is what James says the purpose of trial is for. Steadfastness itself isn't just an end in and of itself. In other words, endurance isn't the goal, but it's merely a means to the goal because God is actually bringing trials into your life, even as a result of sin, of yours or other people's, for the sake of some end goal. And he says it like this in verse 4, steadfastness, endurance, the word is to stay underneath something, staying under a heavy weight. This endurance to the end, its goal is full maturity. Steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It has its intended end, this fulfillment, this completion, lacking nothing at all. In other words, God brings trials into your life for that exact purpose to actually strengthen you, both your resting in God's words and to confirm to you yet again that God's words are trustworthy. God has an intention, even if it fell to you, like the robbers fell upon the man on the road to, Jer to Jerusalem. For God, it's not accidental. It's not unforeseen. God allowed that into your life for a purpose. So James says, look beyond the pain to the purpose. Find joy in that. And isn't that what Jesus did here on earth? Peter tells us exactly that, that it's because of the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross, made little of the shame. 
He didn't moan and bemoan it. He said, it's, it's a little thing to me because of what is waiting for me. This perspective works on the smallest of trials all the way to the, most, to the largest of trials we could face. I want you to think about the most evil thing that's ever occurred in the history of the world. And I think we'd be hard-pressed to come up with anything that isn't this. The Son of God coming and being killed when he came to save. Now, would we call that a trial? Of course. A trial brought on by no harm, by no sin of Jesus himself? Of course. Was it the work of men who hated him? Yes. Was it sinful? Yes. But it was God's plan. It was. God in his infinite sovereignty can take even the sins of men and shape them to fit you precisely. Maybe you are facing trials because of somebody's sin towards you. Maybe you've been wronged against your whole life. You've had parents completely let you down. You've had children lie about you. You've had people at work malign you. Do you know that God uses those things? If he can use the cross of Christ and plan the cross of Christ for the sake of infinite good, you and I, being able to eternally worship God instead of being condemned by him, don't you think he can have a plan for you? Here's the problem. We don't know the reason. All we know is that God says it's for our good. Are you okay with not knowing all of God's thought process? Is it possible that God has a reason you haven't thought of? We spend so much of our energy and our effort asking this question, but I want to know why in this particular case God did this particular thing. And James says what we actually need to focus on is the past. He says this, you know the end to which God is working, if it's a small trial or a large one. So he encourages us to stay underneath the weight so that it can have its final effect. There's more I'd love to say there, but for sake of time, what I want to do is now turn our attention to what we all intuitively know. We can't do this. Can you do this? Can you respond to trials like this? You see them coming and you say, you know what, I'm going to look past the pain. Not because it's not important, but because I want to see what, what is it that God's doing. And then I want to respond with nothing but joy. I can't do that. <laughs> Can you? So what do we need? The biblical word is this. We need grace. That's what we need. That's actually where James goes next. We'll be brief here because James is. But I think this is a passage that's often misapplied, not because it's not true the way that it's applied, but it's taken out of this context, and so we actually miss this precious truth. Because what James is going to talk about next is the skill of responding to joy and trials. The word he uses is the word wisdom. Verse 5 says, if any of you lack wisdom. And he just bridged these two with the last phrase in verse 4, lacking in nothing, but if you lack wisdom, he goes on to say. So you can see how these two are connected. And he says this, that what you, don't, what you have to have is wisdom. So if you don't have it, then respond this way. Now, first of all, that might seem kind of odd, but let's, let me just kind of break this out for you. First of all, he says that viewing trials with joy requires skill at applying the Bible. It requires skill, tremendous skill, doesn't it? To look at a trial coming your way, to take your biblical knowledge and apply it to that in such a way that you come out the other side evaluating like this, joy. 
And you can see that connection between lacking and lack. He's addressing our natural response. This wisdom is far more than just being intellectually smart. It's the idea here is spiritual wisdom. The word wisdom itself is simply the word skill. Skill, in this case, in applying the Bible to life. In fact, this is used just very colloquially in Exodus chapter 28, talking about the skill of a craftsman, this wisdom of a craftsman. What James is saying here is if you see this and you say, I can't think that way about these trials. If you lack the skill at doing that, then ask of God. He'll give you the skill to respond in whatever you're facing. Now, is it true that God, if we ask him for wisdom generally, will give us wisdom generally? Of course. But that's not James's point here. James's point here is this. In context, he's saying this. If you look at trials and you don't have joy, you don't have the skill to even imagine how you could have joy, then you have to go to God and ask for it. This is the kind of skill that, God, that James has in mind. This is what the word wisdom means. If you lack this skill at looking at trials and saying, I want, I feel nothing but, I have nothing but joy when I evaluate this, when I'm processing this, and I come out the other end, I say, I am grateful for this. I have a settled confidence that this was for my good. And for that reason, I welcome it. If you say, that's not me. That's not my natural response, James says, ask God. This is the grace for the command. And then he says this, that receiving wisdom requires asking in faith. You can't just haphazardly ask for this. He says, as you're facing this trial, you see it coming. He says this, you need to ask God who gives generously. God is a generous giver to all without reproach. If you say, God, I'm struggling to have joy right now. You know that God will never turn you around and say, get out of here. No, he has a storehouse ready for you. So come to him. He says he'll give to all without reproach, and it will be given him. And both here and in verse 6, both verse 5 and verse 6, when he talks about asking God, he uses a form of the verb that has, carries this kind of emotion to it that you should keep on asking. Don't be fooled. It's almost like James says, you're not going to go to God once, ask for it, and be gone. You're going to have to come back again and again and again, and each time say, God, I need the skill to apply your word to this trial so that I come out the other side saying, I'm grateful. I'm joyful for this. So James says, keep on asking. But he says, let him ask in faith. In other words, he says, what are we to ask for? Perpetual, faith-filled asking. We keep asking. He says, let him ask in faith with no doubting. In other words, don't come to God like this and say, God, I know you're supposed to, I'm supposed to have joy, but I don't think there's a chance I could. I don't think that's a proper response here, but okay. If I'm supposed to do it, tell me how to do it. James says, don't come to God like that. No, come to God saying this, God, I know you are working for my good. That's actually the center reason why we can ask for joy, like I said at the beginning. It's actually because of God's sovereignty, his control, his goodness. To ask this of God in the face of some grave trial is to say something about God. It's to proclaim it in the time of your need. God, you are good. And even though I don't know why you're doing this specific thing, I know you're in control. You've sent this my way. In other words, by having to get on your knees, it actually shapes you towards God. James telling you to pray to God is actually James conforming you, like to a mold. 
to say, if you're going to really ask of God this way, you have to say some things that are true about God. God, you're in control. God, you're good. James is about much more than simply shaping our response to them. He's actually wanting to shape our view of God. It's the view of God that then allows you to see even the hardest of trials. Do you know what, God? You're doing something for me. And I may not know what it is, but I know who you are. So help me to view it that way. Do you know, this is not, this prayer that James is commending to us is not this. God, give me some answer that, from the sky that I don't know about. Just impart it onto my brain. That's actually not what James is saying. This skill is skill at applying what God has already said, not something God has yet to say. In other words, James is not commending this. Ask God for an answer you don't yet have. Instead, he's saying this. Ask God for skill at applying the answers you do have. In fact, if we were to continue through the passage, he goes on to talk about our response to the word. And he says this. Be swift to hear. Listen to the word. Be slow to speak towards it or against it. This skill is perpetual, faith-filled asking for skill to apply God's word. Why should we do this? Because God is a generous giver. And how? In faith. The other option is to be like the waves. He says that if one doubts, he's like a wave of the sea, verse 6, that is driven and tossed about by the wind. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. James' point is not this. If you come and you're asking God for the skill to, to apply his word to your trial, and you're struggling with it, God, this isn't James's point. God says, oh, I see a little doubt. You get nothing from me. That's not what he's saying here. What he's saying that is if you go in and out on whether or not God can do this, whether or not he's good, whether or not he's in control, then you will feel like a wave. And isn't that our experience? Which is why we have to keep on perpetually coming with faith and asking. He says, if you believe and then you doubt, and then you believe and then you doubt, here's what it's going to feel like. It's going to feel like being on a boat <laughs> where the waves are tossing you here and there and everywhere. So if you today say, you know what, that's how I feel like. I feel like Every day I would go back and forth, up and down. Is God good? Is he not? Why did he do this? James says, that experience you're having really is a symptom of something else. It's a symptom that you need to keep coming to God more regularly and saying, God, I need your skill. And it's a symptom of this. You're not taking the words God has already said and applying it to the situation. If you say, you know what, as I face trials, that actually describes what it feels like. It feels like being on a wave, tossed back and forth. Then you and I both have our grace remedy, don't we? To go to God's word and then to ask him for wisdom in applying it. What I'd like to do is then just turn to a few applications. I'll be brief. First of all, we need to know God's word in good times. I mentioned that this kind of thinking requires preparation, doesn't it? When I was in high school on that same soccer team, I, I remember one time we went for a run, and it was a friend of mine. His name was Michael. He was really, really fast, and I would always try to keep up with him. So we went on a run that we were told was going to be one mile, and I thought, I bet I can beat him in a mile. So we start going, and I start pushing it. I mean, I'm hurting, but I think I'm almost there. 
If I can beat him, I'm never going to let him forget this moment because he always beat me at everything. He's so quick. We're racing towards the finish line, and the coach says, do another lap, another mile. Well, at that moment, I was spent. <laughs> I had no intention on trying to keep up with him. I was done. I had prepped for a mile, and I was given two. James is, in a sense, saying, prep for two miles. Be ready. In the good times, you get to know God so well and know his word so well that when the trials come, you have the tools to now then apply to your situation. A lot of times when we're most taken off guard by the trials God sends our way, it's also a symptom of this. I don't really know God, and I don't even know where to turn to in his word. So if you say today, you know what, I don't really have any trials, none that I can think of right now, you still have some homework, don't you? <laughs> you still actually, right now is the time to prepare. Right now is the time to say, you know what, God, I need to know you so well that whatever you send my way, I will see as coming from the good hand of a father who loves me. Know God's word in the good times. And if you say, you know what, I'm in a trial right now and it's too late, I don't know God like that. And I have to to be able to face this in this way. God gifts you with other people. He does. And it may be that somebody else in here could be a pastor, it could be a friend. You may need them to say, let me impart upon you what God says about this. Let me be a help to you. Would you just go to somebody and ask them for this? Say, you know what, I, I don't know what God says about this. Can you help me? That's one of the reasons God gives us each other. So know God's word, and if you need help with that, please approach somebody. Secondly, expect trials to come because God has an end in mind. In other words, God's tool for shaping you is trials. That's often what he does. And it's his tool for confirming in you over and over again that he's trustworthy. If your life was only roses, there's a sense in which you'd never know if you could really stand on God. But God wants you to know that you can. So just like everyone else in this world, you will face trials, but for you, God has a purpose. He wants you to know that he is reliable, and he wants you to know him. His goal is nothing but complete, perfect perfection in you, completion in you. James actually uses a word back there in verse 4. It was a word that was used of, of things like uh, the purpose for a certain item. So if you had a, a sword, the sword's job was to cut. And whether or not it cut to its full potential, was this word was used to describe that. Does it do what it's fully intended to do? God says he wants you to be able to do what you're fully intended to do, and he sends trials to make sure it happens. So expect them to come because God loves you. Because God loves you. Thirdly here, be comfortable with dependence on God. This kind of perspective that says, I will fall to my knees and Ask, knees and ask for this again and again and again and again and again, and I'll never stop asking because I know I need it, is also the kind of heart that becomes really comfortable with being dependent on God. Now, depending on how you normally respond to struggles and trials, if you respond with fear or worry or anxiety, you know, it's ultimately also a dependence problem. I don't really want to trust in God because what if he messes it up or doesn't do what I want him to do? If you say, you know what, I struggle with trials where I just try to take the bull by the horns, either by manipulating people or blowing up in anger, 
Ultimately, really what that is, is a dependence problem on God. Is God really in control? Can you really trust him? Learn to become dependent on God. Like a little child who's comfortable grabbing his father's hand. Over and over again, when trials come, don't delay. Go right away and say, God, I know I need your skill. I need it now. Don't hesitate. Become comfortable with dependence on God. And finally, learn to pause, to pray, and then to respond. I remember when Megan and I got stopped on the side of the road on our way to Biltmore. For whatever reason, this sticks in my mind. We were talking about this morning that we both stopped. We had been so excited about the time away. We stopped and we turned and we just prayed. And we said something very much like what James says here. God, I don't know why you're doing this because we really want to go away. This was going to be a special time, but we know you're, you're up to good for us. So help us to respond that way. I, we talked something very much like that in the prayer to God. In that moment, in that moment, it was a pausing, not re- reacting right away, praying, and then responding. Would you be comfortable in that path? Well, I know we've gone a bit long today, and I really appreciate your attention. Uh, if you would bow with me in prayer, because like me, I think we all recognize the need for, we have to have this kind of grace to respond this way. I pray that God will give it to us. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your kindness to us and giving us this perspective on trials. To count trials as nothing but joy is a supernatural response. And so it requires supernatural skill. But it's skill that you give out generously. The reason that we can face trials this way is not because we're such good people. We're so morally secure that when bad things come, we just assume it's for our good. Now, the reason we can respond this way is because you are good. And we know that to be the case. We've seen it in our own lives, all through the pages of Scripture and the lives of others. I pray that as we face trials, that we would process them, evaluate them, and come out the other side saying, I have a settled confidence that this is for my good, and I'm grateful for it because I know who God is. This kind of staying under the trial rather than trying to manipulate the circumstance or withdrawing from others, from pulling away from you, but staying under it, it has a full effect. It makes us complete and whole, and that's what you're after. So I pray that you would help us to be eager to ask for your help, for your wisdom, for your skill at applying your word. Help us to know your word, especially in the good times, so that our our reaction will be word-driven and not worldly-driven. Pray that you would help us for your sake. We ask this in Christ's name.